I want to invite you to think with me just for a moment or so about what it would be like if you were king for a day or queen for a day, if you were royalty. What would it be like if you were king of the world or the queen of the world for a day? All resources at your fingertips. You could do whatever you would want to do to make the world a better place. What would you do? What kind of changes would you make? What would make your, your top three list? What would be at the top of your list if you could do anything to make the world a better place because you were king or queen? Well, I imagine we could come up with some pretty good ideas. Uh, we've got some smart people in the room, smarter than first service. Well, now you know what I said first service, don't you? So, I'm not a politician, but I play one on TV, so. (laughs) I imagine we could come up with some pretty good ideas, some things that actually would make the world a better place. But by way of contrast, what's so fascinating to me is that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who does have all wisdom, all power, and authority, and He will rule and reign forever and ever, chooses to do something in the world before he leaves, before he left, that probably isn't what we would choose to do. Seems a little counterintuitive when we look at Acts chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and following, which is where, where we will be today. The King of kings and Lord of lords doesn't seem to do what I would do if I were the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And yet He does. And so I hope that in the days to come, starting today, we might think differently because surely Jesus knows what's best. And as He provides salvation to everyone who would believe through His redemptive kingdom, surely that is actually the best thing in the entire world for the entire world. I hope you're convinced, if not this morning, at least eventually as we study this book together. So if you have a Bible, you can find the book of Acts. You can turn there if you have the turning kind of Bible. You can turn on your Bible if you have the turning on kind of Bible or your Bible app. We're going to start the book of Acts today. Some wise soul said to me this morning, they said, do you have your Acts together today? I said, I have my act. I see what you did there. Uh, I do. So we're going to start the book of Acts today. We're going to do chapter one. Uh, I don't have a fancy outline for you. I think it would only probably get in the way. We're going to cover the basics. There's, there's a prologue. There's some, some basic distinctions in the chapter, but this is all introductory, if you will. A really long introduction for next week where things really get spicy. Okay. In chapter two, I don't want to discount chapter one, but really looking forward to what we'll see when we get to chapter two. Next week. So let's go ahead and jump right in. I have, I don't know, 30 some pages of notes and I want you to get to Chick-fil-A before they close. They're not open, right? I know this. I'm just trying to be funny. (laughs) Okay, let's jump in and look at the opening, the prologue, okay? Beginning at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus... I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles 
whom he had chosen. And so right there we see who the, the first recipient of the book of Acts was. And his name is what? Theophilus. And if we were reading the Bible through, starting in the New Testament, we would say, oh, we've, we've met this guy before. This is not the first time we hear of Theophilus. In chapter 1 of Luke, Luke's gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we hear of Theophilus. And we learn a little bit more about him. Very similarly, though, I'll read Luke 1, 1 to 4 real quick. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you. Here it is. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Theophilus is not only Theophilus, kind of hard to say. He's not only Theophilus, he's most excellent Theophilus. Somehow a unique, dignified person, uh, holding office perhaps, uh, who is a professing Christian who's heard the gospel based upon Luke's account. You have been taught. Maybe he's not a professing Christian. It would seem that he is. He's certainly been taught the gospel. And what the author of Luke's gospel account and now the book of Acts, because it's a two-volume set, okay? So we call it Luke-Acts. Same author for both of them. Same recipient for both of them. And he wants to make sure that Theophilus, who was not an eyewitness... Just like you are not an eyewitness and I'm not an eyewitness. He wants to make sure someone like Theophilus, Theophilus and someone like him, like you and me, has credible testimony. I wasn't there to see Jesus. I didn't see him raised from the dead. I didn't hear him speak. I didn't see him ascend to heaven. So can you help me out, author of Luke Acts, so I can have more confidence I like what he says in Luke's account where it says, so that you may have certainty. I call the gospel, according to Luke, the gospel of certainty. For the person who, who wants a higher level of certainty, that this is actually what happened. That's the flavor we get from the book of Acts chapter 1. It's the flavor we get from Luke's gospel account chapter 1. Let's learn from those who were apostolic eyewitnesses. As far as authorship goes, who wrote the book of Acts? Well, whoever wrote the book of Acts is the same person who wrote the book of, we call the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke. It's pretty much agreed upon by Christians that it's someone named Luke. I think it's been pretty settled since at least the second century. Only people who'd want to attack the Bible and try to question the authenticity of the Bible, opponents of the Bible would, would call that into question. But let me help you at least to kind of bring you along to, to understand some of the rationale as to why we would call it the gospel according to Luke and why we would say Luke wrote the book of Acts. The first clue is when we read the book of Acts in the latter portion, the Paul portion, um, the beginning really traces the ministry of Peter and then the second part traces the ministry of the apostle Paul. And a reoccurring theme we have with the apostle Paul, or not theme, I should say, but what we hear if we're looking for it, is we, 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 we. 
The author doesn't speak that way regarding Peter, but once he gets to the Paul section, it's we. Chapter 16, chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 27, chapter 28. I'll just give you one sampling. This is chapter 20, verse 6. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So whoever's writing this account was with the Apostle Paul. Well, what kind of learned person who has really good Greek, who has a good grasp on technical language, who clearly is highly educated based upon the way he speaks, as R.C. Sproul says, whoever wrote Luke Acts was not a fisherman. Maybe a slight slight to Peter, but anyway, who would that be? Somebody who was with Paul a lot. Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, he's educated, highly educated, greets you. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Chapter chapter 1 of Philemon, there's only one chapter. Philemon verse 24, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So at the end of the day, New Testament scholars, Christians have said, it would seem most likely, though our salvation does not depend upon it, and the truthfulness of the Bible does not depend upon it, it's pretty reasonable that we call it the gospel, gospel according to Luke and Acts. Sounds weird, doesn't it? According to Luke, volume one, volume two. Before we move on, maybe one uh, helpful quotation from the famous archaeologist William Ramsey. He says this, Luke as a historian, Luke is, excuse me, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He is possessed by the true historic sense. And here's what that archaeologist means. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature at great length while he touches lightly or omits entirely much that is valueless for his purpose. He has a keen eye. He knows, he knows how to read text well and he knows how to write text well in a way that people can follow and understand and get the big points and get the big picture. He's liking, likening Acts and Luke to such a person. Like I said, maybe someone named something other than Luke wrote Luke Acts. It actually doesn't matter, but for convenience, we call it the gospel according to Luke. It was someone who was with Paul. Luke is the best candidate given his training, given his education. And so we're going to call it Luke Acts, Gospel According to Luke, Acts According to Luke also. Okay, now we get to the subject matter. We're going to return to verse 1. And before we even read verse 1, we call it the book of Acts, which isn't inspired either. Why do we call it the book of Acts? Well, the way I remember it is it's the book of actions, right? It's, the, it's what they did. It's the works. So the book of actions. I like high action books. So the book of action, the book, the book of Acts. Now, here's where there's a division. So people say, well, it's the, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. Some other people say, no, it isn't. It's the acts of the apostles. And somebody else comes along like me and says, no, it isn't. It's the acts of Jesus. How about this? Since I have such an ecumenical spirit about me, how about they could all be true? Um, They they all actually are true. 
I just to be provocative and kind of poke the bear a little bit to get you thinking, I'm going to call it the acts of Jesus today. Because we're going to see Jesus is there, their eyewitnesses to him, and Jesus tells them what to do. And they're his apostles. So what they do, they do on his behalf. And it's his spirit that the Father and the Son send. And so if the spirit is leading the apostles who belong to Jesus, but the spirit sent by Jesus, it's the acts of Jesus, even though Jesus ascends. Now, again, in all sincerity, you can call it whichever one of those you'd like to. So when you get transferred, your job transfers you to Fargo, North Dakota, and you're a church member there, don't say, well, my pastor said it's the acts of Jesus. Don't be that church member. <laughs> there are hills to die on. This is not one of them. But I'm just trying to get you thinking. Definitely the acts of the apostles. The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. What they did, early church. That's, that's true. And they were led and guided supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. And Jesus is the one who promised the Spirit to come otherwise known sometimes as the Spirit of Christ or His apostles, it's the acts of Jesus too. You see how sometimes I just kind of lose my mind up here to try to just get your attention and go, oh, I get it now. So all, all, all are involved. I hope it helps. I hope it doesn't get in the way. Sometimes I would be willing to stand on my head if it would help get your attention to get this stuff uh, across to you. Okay. Now, we didn't even get to verse 1, did Okay. Verse 1, looking at the subject matter, which is going to be Jesus. I know we've already looked at it. We're looking at it again because we're talking about the subject matter. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, see, that's why I wanted to say Jesus began to do and teach. So it's what Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he, who is that? Jesus was taken up after he Jesus had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom, notice, He had chosen. It's most certainly all about Jesus in that opening section, and that's why I went on and on the way I did. Maybe one more thing when it comes to who it's all about. Before we move on to the next verse, verse 3. Who it's all about, who it's written to. I guess I'm kind of going back and forth there. Um, the book of Acts is to help those who belong to Jesus have confidence that their faith is not in faith. Okay? They're, to, 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 it's an apologetic, to use the fancy term. It's a defense of the legitimacy of Christianity. If you're a Christian, you're not crazy. It, you might be crazy, but you're not a crazy. You're not crazy just because you're a Christian. Okay. <laughs> it serves an apologetic purpose because if you are a Christian, you're believing in Jesus, and this Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses, heard by like what I like to call ear witnesses. He's not a phantom. This isn't a back alley kind of thing. This is a public matter. So it's definitely an apologetic to, the, to those who belong to Christ. It's about Him. The legitimacy of believing in Him. And I'm getting ahead of myself now, but when we read the book of Acts and we see all the different things that happen, 
a lot of the things that happen aren't good. And I actually think that's helpful. The gospel's true. And look, people get killed for it. That's not good. It may cause me to think, is it true? Because if it were true and it's good news, wouldn't everybody be happy? The answer to that is, you might think so, but the answer is no. And so it's about the truth regarding Jesus that is good for you if you believe it, but not everybody does. And so it's meant to to encourage Christians, to strengthen Christians, to keep looking to the legitimate Christ. It's about Him, and it's right to be about Him. But it definitely serves that kind of apologetic kind of value. I'll try my best to not make the book of Acts come across as, you know what, that's what it was like in the good old days. I think that's a mistake that preachers make sometimes. You know, in the good old days, like in the book of Acts, everything was good. Really? (laughs) You might want to read it a little closer. It's the church in the old days, in its infancy, and it was true and right and good, but a lot of bad things happened. And I hope this, as we study this together as a church... It helps us to see the gospel can be true and right and good and good news unto salvation. But that doesn't mean that those who proclaim it, defend it, believe it are always treated nicely. But it's not a reason for you to say, therefore, I don't want to be a Christian. Which is contrary to what you might hear on TV, because if you're a Christian, everything goes great. And if you're a Christian, you're going to be healthy, wealthy and popular you might want to read the book of Acts about the good old days. (laughs) It's not so good sometimes. But it doesn't discount the reality of it, the truthfulness of it, the genuineness of it, the goodness of it. The goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to encourage us. Okay, let's move to verse 3. He, that would be Jesus, presented himself... Luke is going out of his way to to stress this is not in somebody's heart. This is not in somebody's imagination. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Luke is doing all this on purpose. Not only that, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And the reason I'm saying things with such deliberateness is because I think Luke wants us to see it that way. He no doubt does. So when he, he he's appearing over the course of a significant amount of time, Christians aren't believing in Jesus because they had a dream. Christians aren't believing in Jesus because they had a unique, hidden, nobody can evaluate it vision. That's not it. He's going out of his way. Jesus appeared. He himself over a significant amount of time after he suffered. And I'm a broken record here as a Christian pastor, but I need to be, I think, because sometimes Christians speak as if they're Christians because of something that merely or only happened in their heart. And, and Luke is not doing that. He's not that, he's not, he's not offering that apologetic, that defense. Seen. Witnessed. Oh, and not only that, then he moves on to say, not only did they see Jesus, did he appear to them. What else? He spoke. They heard. Yes, I'm a broken record here. 
in saying Jesus was not the strong, silent type. Jesus was the strong, vocal type. And this is really important for us as Christians. Even if you're not a Christian, it's important that you hear this from a Christian perspective. Jesus not only did things that were really extraordinary, He spoke and interpreted the meaning of them. So it's not like Jesus was raised from the dead and then it's, okay, so whatever that you'd like that to mean to you for your truth is fine by us. No, Jesus did these things and Jesus spoke and explained the significance and the meaning of these things. And so let's keep that in mind when we're working our way through this. And his apostles are the ones who will then therefore speak with the same authority. It's commissioned authority because they received it from him. So when Peter speaks, it's as if Jesus speaks, if he's a true apostle. And when Paul speaks, it is as if, hard to say, it is as if Jesus speaks, if he's truly an apostle. And they're not the strong, silent type either. They speak rather clearly. Speaking, notice, then let's keep going in verse 3, speaking about the kingdom of God. We probably should talk about that before we move on because it's all about the kingdom of God. The whole book of Acts is about the kingdom of God. And you said, I thought it was about the Acts of the Apostles through the power of the Spirit commissioned by... Yeah, it is, it is, it is. But in chapter 1, kingdom of God. Chapter 28, kingdom of God. The whole thing is about Jesus being, you guessed it, the King. He, the word Christ, same word, Messiah means king. Old Testament word used in the New Testament. He is the king. And when we see next week, I can't wait for next week, Peter preach on the ascension and its significance. We're going to see the ascension today, but it's not really unpacked. He ascends not only from earth to heaven, but he ascends to the throne where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so when we see all of these things happening, these are kingdom things. Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. This is why I did the introduction that I did. What would you do if you were king for a day or queen for a day? What Jesus would do is have his apostles go and preach the good news of salvation, of redemption in him. He preaches of the, the redemptive kingdom. That's what he does. The whole thing is about the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, in particular through the proclamation of the good news of salvation in Him. Acts 28, verse 28 says, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God, keep that in mind, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He, the Apostle Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to Him Verse 31 of Acts 28, this is the bookend of the book of Acts, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Well, I thought he was proclaiming salvation of God. He is proclaiming salvation of God, and he uses it interchangeably there for kingdom of God, redemptive kingdom. This salvation of God, the kingdom of God. And then it goes on to say, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So we're going to have some clarification in the book of Acts about what God's kingdom is, what it, what it means, what it doesn't mean. Remember the apostles uh, sometimes had a hard time with understanding what God's kingdom is. 
To the point where Jesus had to say in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not the way you think it is. What you guys want is for me to call down fire from heaven and mow down all of these clowns. Right? You want second coming justice judgment now. And I was going to say, trust me. Don't trust me. The Bible teaches that is going to happen. But what we see in the book of Acts is that not happening. Well, we, we see the redemptive part focused on. In the here and now, before we get to the end, before we get to the second coming, we see the reign and rule being this redemptive reign and rule for those who would come to believe, equated with salvation. We tend to get it wrong sometimes too. Make me king today. Mow down all of those who do injustice. Hide the weapons from Pat. <laughs> but you know, sometimes you see so many wrong things happening, you're saying, just, just fix the world now. Well, if that would have happened in Acts 1, you wouldn't be here right now, and neither would I. So in this in-between time, pre-second coming, there will be a second coming and the king will return. This is why in Christian theology we have to be careful sometimes because we're trying to take all of the biblical data into into play. We're looking at Matthew 24, 25, but we're also reading the book of Acts, which is kingdom, kingdom, bookends. We say the kingdom of God is inaugurated because he ascends to the throne. But we're waiting for it to be consummated. Second coming return. It's important that we talk about things like that. Inaugurated, because he is the king. It's, it, 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 wait, next week, he, he, he occupies the throne of David. He is the Messiah. Inaugurated, but not consummated. We're longing for the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're lo- longing for that day of his return. Getting so excited, I don't know where I am. We'd better move on. Now the promise of the Holy Spirit's unique coming, probably more unique than we might think. It has everything to do with the messianic kingdom, the, the Christ kingdom, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promised beforehand kingdom. How about verse 4? And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them, the apostles, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me, John 14, John 15. For John, get this, how about verse 5? For John baptized with water, that would be John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Baptists like to call him John the Baptist. Presbyterians like to call him John the Baptizer. Not really, but sometimes. (laughs) Verse 5, for John baptized, that would be not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That right there, if I'm, if I've got, if I'm trying to think clearly, big picture, biblically, in the light of a lot of the data, this means Jesus is the Messiah. This means Jesus is the long-expected, awaited, Old Testament, promised, prophesied king. Because in the Old Testament, there's promises about one who would come before, the forerunner, 
and there would be one who would come after, who would be the one. And the one who is the one will uniquely, extraordinarily, if he's the Messiah, pour out his spirit and bring refreshment and life. Uh, that, that, that's, that's no doubt what's happening here. Even, even by what he says in verses 4 and 5, for me, it's jumping off the page. That means Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King. He's the one the prophets have been speaking of. And I don't want to lose you here, but I do want to go read a portion from Matthew chapter 3 because John the Baptist and Jesus, and that's the connection. And then I want to read a little bit from Isaiah 44 and 32. You can go there if you want, but you don't need to. But, but a lot of what we're going to do in the book of Acts, more so next week, is connect dots. Old Testament promise prophecy. This is fulfillment. Fulfillment in Jesus. A lot of what happens, happens that way. Going back to that apologetic thing I talked about, which means defense, it doesn't mean apology. To, to, to defend the legitimacy of Christianity, most, almost oh, excellent Theophilus. A big part of what Dr. Luke does is connect dots. That was prophesied in Isaiah. Coming messianic kingdom. Connect the dots. This is what's happening with the pouring out of the Spirit uniquely because that didn't just come out of nowhere. That was anticipated and prophesied in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Joel. He's the one. He's the one history's been waiting for. So with that in mind, I try to give you enough time to find Matthew 3 if you wanted or Isaiah 32 and 44 if you wanted. Matthew 3 says, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here's what he said, verse 2. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. You thought I was just making this stuff up. No, spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This, this is it. John is saying, this, this is kingdom at our doorstep. According to the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What do you do when the king's coming in the ancient world? You make sure the road is straight. It's safe. You, you, you want safe passage because he's coming to your town. Well, that's the, that's the figurative language that's used, that John is using. Let's, let's fix up all the roads and make all the roads straight and safe because the king is coming. Isaiah prophecy, the king. Verse 11 says of Matthew chapter 3, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mighty, mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I've read that so many times in my Christian life, and I, I wasn't raised in a church that taught the Old Testament and the New Testament. I wasn't raised in a church that taught the Bible very well, period. But I would suggest to you that the original readers would hear that and say, baptism of the Spirit? That's Isaiah talk. That didn't just come out of nowhere. That's messianic fulfillment, the Christ coming ultimate ruling and reigning one talk. If he baptizes with the Spirit, 
we're going to have fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32 verse 15 says, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruit field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. She's using this grand imagery. The, the land is parched. It's barren. It's not fruitful. Oh, for the spring rains to come so that we could have life and sustenance and thriving. And that's the imagery that's used. And until the Spirit is poured out like water from on high, until that happens, we won't have blessing, abundance. We won't have the life like we're looking for. That's the imagery. But notice Isaiah was talking about this coming day when the Spirit would be poured out. That sounds like the book of Acts. Uh, yeah, it does. That's why Peter's going to say things like, this is that. Isaiah 44, verses 3 to 5. For I will pour water on the thirsty land. This is prophetic looking forward, kingdom anticipation for i will i will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground here's what here's what i wanted you to hear i will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants he likens it to water no wonder we have the baptism of the spirit refreshment life sustenance fruitfulness and power they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams If you're wondering why I get excited about this kind of stuff, it's because it's the joy of discovery, I guess. I've studied the book of Acts a fair amount of times in my life. I've preached through the whole book before. And then you learn more and more and more. And you're like, you know what? (laughs) It sounds a lot more like the Old Testament than I thought. The Bible sounds a lot more like it's all part of one great divine plan than I thought. And I thought that it is for a long time. But you start, you start seeing what happens better. You're like, oh, this isn't a plan B. <laughs> this isn't a, well, I tried this and it didn't work, so I came up with this idea kind of out of left field. No, it sounds a lot like Isaiah's prophecies are being fulfilled in Jesus. I love it. Kind of makes me want to start my Christian life over. I mean, I just look back and think, if I would have just... I mean, I I didn't read a book until I was in college for fear of my father. I was going to not get any more money if I didn't start passing classes. (laughs) I should probably read. And I was trying to impress a girl. Her name was Molly. We've been married for about 30 years now. But (laughs) I just want to go back in my life and think, man, what would have happened if I would have read a book when I was in junior high? Not to mention high school, not to mention if I would have been reading the Bible, paying attention, man, I I could grow up to be a Bible teacher or something someday. (laughs) You go, oh, wow. It connects like I didn't even realize it connected. One of my current favorite commentators in the book of Acts, I really like... Dennis Johnson a lot, and I really like a a man named Guy Prentice Waters a lot. I've read a bunch of commentaries in the past, but my two favorites for for the this time through, Guy Waters says this, It marks the dawn of the age to come. 
the last days of which the Old Testament prophets spoke. If this is that, it marks the dawn of the age to come, even though we're in this present age. What does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Well, based upon the Isaiah passages, you can see it's like water, refreshment, life from dead to alive. But Luke's gospel account regarding the ascension might help. Luke twenty four forty nine. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So in one text, wait for the baptism of the Spirit. Let's put that another way. When you're clothed with power from on high. New life, yes. Unique, extraordinary power to do unique, extraordinary ministry, yes. I'm ready to move on to talk about the ascension, but it's only going to be a little preview because next week is ascension. I have a whole sermon on the ascension and I tried to sneak it into this sermon, but we were going to be here way, 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 way too long. But we probably undervalue the significance of the ascension. And I'll stand in the front of that line. For a lot of my Christian life, I didn't realize how important it is. Here it is, but not really unpacked. Peter's going to unpack it in chapter 2. But here it is described. Verse 6 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So we're not quite to the ascension yet, but it's related. Now, let's guess on the answer. Is he going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, it probably needs some nuancing in how we're going to answer that. Because remember, the disciples already kind of thought wrongly about this regarding the times and the seasons and, and chapter 24 of Matthew. Are you, going to, are you going to pour out wrath now? It's not for you to know the times and the seasons, how all this is going to culminate. But at the same time, when he says, or when they say, Lord, will it be at this time you restore the kingdom of Israel? Well, there's definitely kingdom restoration things happening. But is it only for Israel? Let's keep reading. How about verse 7? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. So that sounds a lot like Matthew 24. So if you want to know how it's all going to end, when it's all going to end, if you guys all want to get out your charts and figure out exactly where it's going to be so you can sell charts, you, you, don't, you don't get to know that, like in chapter 24. Exactly how this is going to unfold and exactly when the timing is going to be. No, that's actually not for you to know. But let's keep reading. Please keep reading. This is so fascinating. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Well, that, that that's kingdom talk. That's Isaiah Messianic kingdom talk. Make no mistake about it. You will receive power. The, the, yeah, okay, there you go. Keep reading. And you will be my witnesses. Well, that's actually Messianic kingdom talk too. That's Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses. Does that kind of sound the same? It not only kind of sounds the same, it's he's borrowing the verbiage from Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses. And here he says in our text, you will be my witnesses. Messianic kingdom talk from Isaiah 43.10. But notice the, the scope in Jerusalem. That's what they were wanting. That's what they were anticipating. Maybe mow down all the other nations because they're bad. No, keep reading. And in all Judea. And Samaria, where the Jews' enemies were? Say what? And Samaria, and to the end of the earth? 
Yeah. So, kingdom Lord depends on what you mean. The way you're thinking of it, probably not. But make no mistake about it. You'll be my witnesses, but you're going to be my witnesses. And what are we going to do? We're going to start in Jerusalem. And this is actually the outline of the book of Acts. It's geographical. We're going to start in Jerusalem. Then we're going to work our way to Judea. And then we're going to work our way to Samaria. And then we're going to work our way all the way to Rome to the ends of the earth because we're going to Gentiles. That's how the book unpacks. I think I have it written down here somewhere. Yeah, Jerusalem chapter 1 to chapter 7. Samaria chapters 8 to 12. End of the earth, chapters 13 to 28. So the way he answers their question is a depends on what you mean kind of question. I referenced earlier, by the way, Isaiah 43, 10, you are my witnesses. I failed to mention chapter 44, verse 8, you are my witnesses. Those are Old Testament, Isaiah, Messianic prophecy texts. And those same texts are coloring, if you will, the words of Jesus in his answer to their question. Did I say we're going to get to the ascension? We're going to get to the ascension. Okay, how about verse 9? And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, Dr. Luke wants us to pay attention to eyewitness stuff. This isn't happening in a back alley or in someone's bad dreams or good dreams. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, so I want to read it that way, as they are eyewitnesses, they're looking on eyewitnesses, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So as they are watching, we have the ascension happen. And Luke's account tells us it happens in Bethany, so really close to Jerusalem. So you've got to the east of Jerusalem, to the city, Mount of Olives. He's going to talk about that in a little while. And just a little bit further, almost within eyesight, if it weren't for geographical changes, you've got Bethany. He ascends there in a real place as they're looking in a cloud. I'm not going to take the time to go there, but if we're connecting dots here, and he's the messianic king, the ultimate David from chapter 2 of Acts, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 is the same kind of cloud event when he goes up to the ancient of days. I'm going to read it that way. Daniel chapter 7. I said 2 Samuel, I'm sorry. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Probably deliberate. I wouldn't die on that hill though. Then let's keep going. Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up, that's ascension talk, from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Notice saw, same way. So it's all I can do to have self-control and to not talk about the theological significance of the ascension because we're saving it for next time. I might sneak in a little bit at the end today. But for now, we're going to move past it because it's, it's to come. But do notice these men, as they are called, dressed in white, say, why are you just standing there? My paraphrase. wonder why he says that. I wonder why they say that. Well, maybe we have an answer there where it says at the end of verse 11, 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is my take. I wouldn't die on this hill. But in other words, I think there's work to be done. Why are you just standing there? He told you what to do. Now go do it. He told you where to go wait. Now go. And maybe by implication, because there's a lot of work to do. Oh, and there's motivation to do the work. Because guess what? He is coming back. And if he's coming back, it would be a good idea to do the work he told you to do. By way of secondary application, I would want to have the same kind of motivation. I'm not an apostle. I wasn't there. I wasn't an eyewitness. But you know what? If the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back, the Bible definitely puts an emphasis on there's work to be done. So what we don't do is just pull out the lawn chair at the end of the driveway and sit there and wait. As someone literally said, date setters are crazy. Anyway, that's an aside. Why are you just standing there? And we're going to see them not just stand there for very long. They're going to go and obey the Lord in all kinds of good and significant gospel, redemptive kingdom ministry is going to take place in light of His return. Okay, now let's close it out by looking at this replacement of Judas. But before we look at verse 12, inquiring minds want to know this, the answer to this question. How many disciples were there? Twelve. Not a trick question, right? There's twelve. On purpose. Based upon other things that Jesus said. So there are twelve. They're going to be called apostles. They're going to have His unique Holy Spirit-driven authority. Twelve. But now how many are there? Now there's eleven. Because of Judas. So why do you think they need to replace Him? Here's, that's where I was going with my questions. Why do they need to replace Him? Well, the reason they need to replace him is because if we're connecting dots and we have 12 tribes of Israel and we have this prophetic anticipation and it's going to be fulfilled with the king occupying the throne of David, it would make sense that there would be 12 of them. So what we had in type and shadow in the Old Testament with 12 tribes, 12 apostles leading the kickoff at least in the redemptive kingdom, not made up of only Israelites, but the nations as well. Because Pentecost, this is quoting Dennis Johnson, because Pentecost would fulfill God's promises to ancient Israel and usher the people of God into a new era. The gap created by Judas' defection must be fulfilled. And I think Johnson is on to something. Jacob's 12 sons, Israel's tribes. Let's have 12. Verse 12 says, ah, see what I just did there? Verse 12 says, it's getting late already in the morning. Who else woke up at 4 o'clock? Okay, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. We would know it as Mount of Olives, right? Right there outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Really close. Which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. 
think that's 11. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, verse 15 says, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So it's not just us speculating as to why this would happen. Peter is fully convinced in his own mind, I would take it guided by the Spirit through their praying there. Judas, according to prophetic anticipation, defected, but he needs to be replaced. And here's something super fascinating that's about ready to happen. Peter, I don't know if he did this before, I don't know. At this point in time, Peter is reading the Psalms from a Christ-centered perspective. Remarkably so. Remarkably so. He's reading the Psalms of David. Let's just do that in particular to be precise. And he's reading them thinking about the ultimate David. He's reading about the previous Messiah, lowercase m. The previous Christ, lowercase c thinking in his mind full well that it was by divine design those things were happening. Peter's connecting the dots, saying, those are messianic psalms. Really interesting. And he's, he's going to reference two, two psalms that are this way. Let's keep reading. I couldn't help myself. It's important. Who became a guide to those, this is, this is verse 16. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Talking about Judas. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Ugh. And to make it even worse, in light of Matthew 27, that's after he hangs himself. So... And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Al-Keldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Here, this, this is what I was talking about earlier. He's going to read, read the book of Psalms in a Christological sense. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's Psalm 69, 25. If you read Psalm 69, it's amazing just how messianic it is. We won't do it now. And let's keep reading. Let another take his office. Psalm 109, verse 8. So led by the Spirit to conclude that not only was the the defection of Judas according to a sovereign greater purpose, even though it's for bad, but you know what? There's also going to be a replacement. Verse 21, let's wrap this up. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men, notice, he's strong about this, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So, let's stress it two ways. This must happen because there needs to be 12 of us. And it also, I would also color the whole text with it must be one who, since John, John the baptizer, 
in and through the time of the ascension. This goes again to that apologetic defense value. Well, Christianity, if it's true, legitimate, genuine Christianity, is not based upon some kind of hokey, fake, weird, back alley, made up thing to get people to send money now. Credible eyewitness who's been with us all along, or they can't be an apostle. That's what he's doing. I like, I like that. I like the strictness. Preserving the legitimacy of the whole thing. Then verse 23 says, And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment and think, that's good thinking. You know the hearts of everybody. You know the unknowable. We want you to show us who you've chosen. That reminds me of the way Jesus spoke to the apostles. Remember? You didn't choose me. I chose you. John chapter 15, verse 16. Now, Now they're talking like Jesus. They had their minds rocked by what Jesus said to them on occasion. And now, as good apostles do, they imitate the one they represent. These two, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Then in verse 26 it says, and they cast lots for them. Why would you do that? There are two people who are qualified. They're committed to the sovereignty of God, the God who knows people's hearts. Which one do you, do you want it to be, Lord? Heads or tails? <laughs> right? It's a tie. We've got to flip on it. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Kind of interesting. Well, I want to end by... by pointing something out to you that I maybe should have pointed out earlier, but I wanted to save it to the end because it has to do with ascension. Which we're going to look at next week. When Jesus ascended, Luke's account, the gospel according to Luke that is, says he lifted up his hands. I don't know how he did it, what it looked like. Probably shouldn't try to imitate because I don't know what it looked like. He raised up his hands and he blessed them. There's some good dot connecting to be made there. Because in the Old Testament, for example, Aaron the priest in Leviticus, who would make sacrifice in the tabernacle, he's the priest, he's the mediator, lifted up his hands to bless the people. He's a representative to bring them blessing from God. It's really fascinating that Jesus, before he ascends... Jesus, who is the ultimate high priest. Jesus is the one who, again, ultimate eternal tabernacle. Once and for all, made sacrifices. Seated when he's done, according to the book of Hebrews. Raises up his hands as the priest, as the king priest. And blesses the people. 
Leviticus chapter 9, verses 22 to 24, complemented by Luke 24, verses 50 and 51. And we won't take the time to go there, but then what you have in the book of Hebrews, again and again and again, if we have that kind of priest, we have confidence. If we have that kind of priest, it's worth being a Christian even if you're persecuted. If we have that kind of priest, we have a bold kind of assurance. If we have that kind of priest, don't turn anywhere else for your significance before God. Just on and on and on. And I just want to remind you that the one before he ascended, the ultimate priest, blessed his people. And think in terms of what that means for us. Assurance security, but then also in light of Hebrews, that emboldens us, causes us to stand firm, to keep looking to Christ and only to Christ. So if you're looking for something to do this afternoon, I heard there's not much else to do this afternoon. Read the end of Luke. Read Leviticus 9. And then read Hebrews. When things get hard, we have that kind of ascended, seated, work done, high priest. No matter what, I'm going to look to him. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an intense introduction to our study. Please bless us as we consider the book of Acts, what you did in and through these unique individuals and those who surrounded them by the power of the Spirit, sent by Christ for the people's good and for our good ultimately. Encourage us today as we go to live for Christ, to suffer when necessary for Christ, to die for Christ when necessary, knowing that in Christ and in Christ alone we have a sure mediator who always claims us as his own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.